Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague, Chris Bond, who's editorial director for Law in Sport. Many of you have heard him on previous podcasts or our annual conference. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, as well as get to know some of the key personalities who are working tirelessly behind the scenes to keep sport running, to make it tick over and to help it develop and professionalise. I'm delighted to welcome our special guest today, Mark Kirtenbach. He is a, um, a specialist in private and public companies and private equity at the uh, venture capital for investors in mergers, acquisitions, debt and equity financing, security offerings, joint ventures, strategic relationships, and more broadly, just general co corporate matters. He is, as referred to, um, Steve Argrigis, who recently joined uh, the law firm that Mark's at, Hogan Lovells, refers to him as a bit of a genius when it comes to all things related to financing in sport. And Steve, many of you will know from speaking to our conference, knows what he's talking about. So, Mark, we're absolutely delighted to have you with us today. Um, how are you doing? Great. Um, Sean, Chris, great to be with you uh, on, on this Law Sport podcast. The reason why we wanted to get you onto the podcast was not only because Steve speaks very highly of you, um, <laughs> which counts for a lot, but was also because there's been a lot of movement when it comes to the sort of investment landscape into sport globally. Um, to start us off, and obviously you're at the, the sort of the cold face of, of this, both in and outside of sports, you're seeing more broader global developments that take place. To set the scene for us, can you tell us about what's been going on sort of in, in the investment landscape when it comes into sort of the, the major US sports? Sure, Sean. The, uh, for a long time in the history of US professional sports, private equity and investment funds were left on the sidelines largely disallowed investors that weren't permitted to hold either majority stakes as controlling owners or have minority interests as limited partners in any type of professional sports team. If you look at the past two decades, you've seen um, the principles of private equity funds, the billionaires behind private equity funds start to become controlling owners in teams. So they become really interested in sports as either a trophy asset or as a growth asset for their own personal stakes. But the funds themselves were left on the sidelines completely, um, not allowed to, um, to be investors under league rules. During the past few years, there's been a lot of press around um, most U.S. professional leagues allowing for um, some type of an investment in um, the actual teams uh, in a limited partner capacity by certain select private equity funds. And we can talk more about the details and the specifics, but you're seeing a high level of growth. But before that started happening, you saw private equity funds sort of circling the space of sports and live entertainment, making investments in um, ticketing business, ancillary venue, venue management businesses, uh, artists, talent, live music, other things related to the ecosystem of sports and live entertainment. It's seen as a really high growth asset uh, with a lot of upside that has been untapped over the years. And so um, as that has been happening, uh, and the rules have been changing as it relates to U.S. Uh, professional sports, uh, you're starting to see a greater interest uh, in funds and investing in professional teams. And, and for people like myself who are, um, you know, Chris used to work in, in private equity, so he, uh, he, uh, private equity clients, he understands this much better than I do. But for people like myself who are maybe not as familiar with the fund structures, can you just describe the difference between sort of the, you know, the structures and the limited liability um, partnerships and how that works and why people use those uh, vehicles to invest? 
Sure. And I'll give you a little background on myself. First, I am a private equity lawyer by trade. I'm not a sports lawyer really by trade. I'm a private equity lawyer who uh, has bought and sold many companies of all kinds of industry. Over the last 10 years, I've been able to um, you know, be a part of many, many things I'm passionate about, including um, you know, American soccer, European football, and a number of other sports. And so really my expertise lies in the private equity side of things and applying that to the domain of sports and sports and entertainment. Um, so uh, private equity funds, at least traditionally in the United States and elsewhere, have historically uh, been managers of, of other people's money. They raise money through limited partnerships from uh, institutional investors or high net worth individuals. They collaborate that money uh, together. And in the classic buyout private equity fund, which is what most of us think about, uh, the goal there is to acquire companies using uh, leverage buyouts, using debt financing as the principal source for the majority of the consideration, uh, utilize the, the, the fund uh, money that they've raised from their limited partners for the equity portion, hold that, uh, direct the business um, during the time in which they own that business um, to engineer it, to improve the efficiencies operationally, and to sell the business, usually within a time frame that allows for an attractive return so that their investors can take advantage of um, of the return on investment that's derived out of that business. And so there's usually a five to, you know, 10 year hold period at the maximum for their various businesses that they would own and acquire. Brilliant. And, and Chris, sorry, did you have a question before? I... Yeah, I, I guess that the natural question that flows from that is, is um, how are these funds being developed when it comes to considering sports based assets? Um, I think we've probably heard a, a little bit and um, listeners might be familiar with the, the idea of longer term funds or evergreen funds. Do you want to speak as to how the evolutions occurred into uh, that, that type of fund based structure for sports assets and, and whether it's unique to sports? Yeah, Chris, really insightful question. And I think in order to understand the background as to why that's important, you have to understand how sports leagues work in the United States. And so, um, Historically, and in all leagues, require a controlling owner that has all the has all the power to decide anything related to the operations of the business, um, including when to sell the team and when to decide to sell the team. Uh, they, there is a single individual in every in nearly every case in U.S. professional sports teams that has the power to do that. Obviously, problematic in what I just talked about, which is the horizon for return on investment or realization on investments that private equity funds have historically had. They're, they need a time horizon historically underneath their limited partnership documents to derive um, returns to their uh, investors. Well, that has tension as it relates to the way a professional sports investment might work, right? If you can't dictate the timing for when the team is sold, you can't dictate the timing for when you will be able to realize your proceeds. And thereby, you don't have a horizon in which to return um, equity. That's always been a challenge. And one of the difficulties and one of the reasons that the that private equity funds have not been in the space of U.S. professional sports team investments. So uh, as leagues have decided to, and we can talk about why leagues have been motivated to, to, um, to change their rules to allow for their investments, in order to accommodate that, private equity funds have had to change themselves and the way they're structured. So one of the principal changes, which Chris is alluding to, is they've essentially had to set up evergreen or perpetual fund investments that don't have set time horizons that allow their money to be deployed in a quasi-perpetual fashion without having to be returned to their um, LPs. So if they're an investor in a professional sports team and that sports team doesn't get sold in, within, a, within a five to 10 year time frame, 
Um, those limited partners wouldn't be able to realize on their investments and funds wouldn't allow for that. Now, funds have modified their own fund internal dynamics within the professional sports worlds, the dials, the Arctos, the other major players within private equity um, investments in U.S. sports to allow for essentially evergreen investments into these teams, um, which isn't designed really forever, but it's designed to allow for a longer time frame than the five to 10 years. And in order to do that, they have back-end dynamics within their fund documents that allow for limited partners in their own funds to come and go and thereby have their own liquidity uh, cycle within the fund instead of having to derive that liquidity from sale of investments by the funds, a sale of an investment in a team per se. And so um, I'm sort of digesting all this. So basically what you're what you're really looking at is then is the the, the so the principles of the fund, give me if I get this wrong, right? They they're the ones with the real interest in terms of that having the longer term vision. And then their job then is to make sure they've got enough uh, limited partners to come in and out at the right times to make sure they continue that investment. Does that pose any potential risk in terms of presuming then if people are coming out of the fund that they could be in a position where um, they say it's not as evergreen as they thought that they initially intended? Well, there, no, no doubt. I mean, you could see yourself in a situation where there's too many limited partners that want liquidity associated with their investment in the fund, but the fund hasn't actually realized and doesn't have the liquidity. And so there are definitely guardrails and mechanisms and limitations and prohibitions. But in theory, there is the ability for limited partners to be able to request liquidity from the fund and for other limited partners to replace them or new limited partners to be brought into the fund to allow it to have a longer term, if not evergreen existence. Brilliant. Uh, and so, Chris. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, Mark. Yeah, I, I did, get, did kind of put the cart before the horse with that um, response on, on the evergreen funds. The, the, the reason why that's done is um, the unique nature of sports and sports leagues, major leagues in particular in the US, and they're obviously quite different to the European setup. Do you want to briefly sort of describe what the differences are and what the unique features of the major US leagues are that kind of require this when it comes to investing and investing by limited partners in particular? Right. I, mean, I think there's a really a dichotomy that's happened in professional sports as it relates to U.S. transactions in professional sports teams and particularly in European football um, transactions. What we are seeing is because leagues in Europe have a bigger and greater tolerance for institutional investors uh, and for private equity funds to control and make decisions of teams or sovereign wealth funds uh, or sovereign wealth, which is just a really super private equity if you look at who's behind a sovereign wealth fund. Um, in the Premier League, for example, you see, see controlling ownership stakes um, readily available. So for $500 million or £400 million, whatever, you can buy a controlling interest. A private equity fund or a solvent Sovereign Wealth Fund can buy a controlling interest in Tottenham um, or, or another team, and they can make all of the decisions and they can be the controlling owner, a fund, not an individual, but a fund can actually be the controlling owner. That structure isn't permitted and never has been permitted in the United States. And instead, what you're seeing in the United States is a completely different transaction structure. Um, what is getting, getting attention and what is permitted for is essentially for funds to come in and be minority owners completely passive owners with limited partnership interests or small minority interests in teams. 
And we can talk about the reasons and, the, and, and why that's happening in that direction, but we're not talking about controlling owners. We're not talking about, you know, big private equity funds like Ares or other funds who, or Dial or these Arctos or other funds who are investing in U.S. professional sports. They're not buying controlling interests in the Golden State Warriors or the Sacramento Kings or the Inter-Miami transaction, which I was involved in. Um, and instead, what we're looking at is limited partnership, non-governance, uh, minority ownership roles which are passive in nature and, and non-controlling. Please do tell us why that is happening. And, um, you know, because that doesn't seem so attractive on the face of it <laughs> as not having a control, uh, having a controlling stake. Why would someone want to put in a sort of minority investment without any really influence? Well, from a fund's perspective, they see U.S. professional sports, I think, uh, in a lens that in the long term or in the medium to long term, the growth that's available from being a side-by-side -side investor with a compelling majority owner who will eventually liquidate their position to sell. I mean, sports teams, multiples in the United States have never stopped the skyrocket pace they started a couple decades ago. And that goes across the leagues. I mean, across every single U.S. major professional sports league, the growth rate uh, far exceeds any growth rate that you you see either you know market indices and quite frankly even many private equity returns. You just have to be willing to let someone else make the decisions to run the company and to eventually sell it. And if you trust that majority owner and you look at the economics that surround the team, the arena, and the other entertainment assets that surround the U.S. professional sports teams, and you say, look, we can put our money in right now at this. And in five years, we expect they're going to sell, or within 10 years, I expect we're going to sell, and the market's going to do this. It'll re the returns are compelling. And so this is a place where diversification of investment portfolios for private equity funds, um, they really have been interested in, in pursuing it, and they just have had to modify their fund structure and then help work with the leagues to develop a path where this actually works uh, within, within U.S. professional sports. Yeah, what, 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 what were the rules, broadly speaking, on controlling interests in major league clubs, um, Mark, historically, and how have they sort of changed recently? You know, controlling interests in U.S. clubs really haven't changed. All the major leagues require a certain uh, level of ownership. I'll call it a majority, but it's not always 50. You know, it could be less. But in essence, a majority owner who is a single individual who can make the decisions, um, and, and that is a person... Uh, an individual person in in all cases, and then they allow for um, you know th there are other rules that have sort of been in play here too. One of the things they think about is in the U.S. the U.S. Prof professional sports league all put debt cap limits, so teams have historically been able to only utilize a very small amount of debt to finance their operations, and that's inconsistent with the leverage buyout model of most private equity firms in in terms of the the leverage buyout model. So it hasn't really fit that either. Um, there has been relaxation on the debt cap limits. Those have gone up, particularly as COVID has, has impacted businesses and people are taking a longer term vision. There's bigger, you know, monetary rights, other things that um, television rights, other things you can monetize. So debt cap limits have gone up. The controlling interest ownership requirements really haven't changed. You still need a controlling owner. What we're talking about in private equity and U.S. sports teams is not the controlling owner. We're talking about the limited partners or minority partners. Um, and so to set the landscape, what would often happen either over time or even on the initial buy-in of a professional sports owner is you'd have a single owner, he'd own 60%, and you might have 10 friends and family or other business acquaintances or wealthy folks who cobble together the other 40% of that ownership group. Those are referred to as limited partners. And 
as professional sports teams, and they would have to hold and they'd be subject to passive rules and they would be in this investment for as long as the majority owner was in the investment. And the value of a U.S. professional sports teams, especially if you start talking about the National Football League or the NBA, um, you know, these are, you know, uh, more than two billion, exceeding five billion in many cases, maybe approaching $10 billion in the near future for a single team. So a 40% interest in that is worth 4 billion U.S. dollars. Well, there are not many people left in the world who can write a $4 billion check to provide liquidity to those limited partners. So the, the, there was essentially a complete lack of liquidity for limited partners. There was no single individuals that could cobble together or have the funds in many cases to write the check necessary to do what? To become a passive investor in a team? Um, and, and so you sort of ended up with a liquidity, I wouldn't call it a crisis because these are really rich people, but, but, but a desire for liquidity within the LP system for U.S. professional sports that was completely unmet. And um, in order to open up opportunities um, that are mutually beneficial for both the league, the existing LPs, the controlling owners who don't want dissatisfied LPs, and for, for these funds that see the, the financial opportunity, the leagues have loosened the rules to allow for these limited partnership interests that I'm talking about to be held by a private equity fund. Um, and so that's really the change of the landscape. And, and presumably as well, they're just doing, this is great for business as well because of the, you know, the conversations as the relationships you're developing as well because they're in the right place at the right time with the right people. Um, so, you know, for these type of private equity funds, it's not just... Um, the immediate investment is about other opportunities and, you know, having those meaningful, you know, interactions with people who are in and around the space. And um, so you're nodding just in case people are listening to the audio. He's <laughs> Mark's nodding. Um, um, so in terms of the interesting contrast then between, obviously, as we found with this, the European Super League, um, you know, uh, discussion that was taking place is you've got the the closed league system. Therefore, you're you're secured in terms of you know who's going to be in, uh, who you're going to be in business with, and you're aligned to this you know longer term strategy. Let's say, whereas in European football, as we take for the example, uh, the investment into a club may be a slightly safer option in terms of if you have a controlling stake in the club because you can at least manage that, whereas you don't have the influence over the actual league as much so therefore that would be why that you don't you're probably seeing less of these um uh sort of as you would say non-controlling investments in in football although as you were talking i think silver lake are kind of i think they invest into the city football group structure though i think that also that was city that was football group and again that's probably again because it's a good long-term strategy globally rather than just investing into one league is that how you see it or um, and is that shifting? Yeah, Sean, I think you're uh, you're spot on in your observations. Um, I think you're seeing controlling ownership in um, European football and other non-U.S. sports because it's allowed, I would just say. I think if it were allowed in the United States, I think you would see it here too. I think there's folks that want to be controlling owners of sports teams, and I think private equity funds would like to do that as well and to make decisions on when to buy and sell companies. It's just not allowed, but I think it would be. I don't think that means that there should would only be controlling ownership interest from private equity or sovereign funds in European football. You you brought up a compelling example. I think Silver Lake's in City Football Group at ten, it was at ten percent at least at the time. 
Uh, I think that's just a pure financial decision. Um, I think it's you know based on many of the same principles that are driving private equity interest in LP or minority interest in the United States. It's a financial look at the controlling owner and the economics surrounding the entire uh, situation, either as it relates to the diversified assets of the City Football Club, or um, you know whether it's interest in a you know Syria team or a rugby league or whatever else. If it's a minority position. You're really looking at the majority ownership and um, allowing them to be your driving force for making that investment and seeing the returns over time. And I think that's what you're seeing in the re some of the rationale for behind why it's still a compelling investment in the United States to be in pro professional sports, even if you're not in control. And what sort of challenges do you think this presents um, and opportunities from a governance perspective? Because, you know, particularly I can speak for, on European football in particular. Uh, sometimes people have accused it of not being as well governed as it could be. So, um, you know, I guess it goes both ways. But what are some of the challenges and what are some of the benefits of um, uh, that come along with sort of private equity investment? So, so I think the prohibition in the United States historically has largely been around governance risks, integrity of the game, having a single individual owner that's making long-term decisions, you know, and has a very, you know, um, vested interest in the, in the, in the club itself and, and not to be a financially driven um, agnostic uh, ownership group. So I think that's what presents the challenges. It's to develop a set of rules um, that allow for private equity investment to take place without impinging upon single ownership, controlling ownership, um, and without driving folks to buy or sell teams just to satisfy the demands of limited partnership investors within funds to allow for um, you know, long-term ownership and integrity of the game. So the other issue that you see is because historically leagues have also in the United States prohibited cross ownership. So if you were a limited partner in one team, you couldn't be a limited partner in another team. If you're a controlling owner in one team, you can't be a limited partner. You could only be involved in one team. And so your thoughts are your allegiances and any information that you get and decisions that you may be able to impact or whatever are only for that single team. Um, and that's not the way private equity would work or does work. So, you know, Dial or Arctos or others, they want to be invested and are invested in multiple teams, sometimes in the same league. And so you've got to protect that by putting in integrity of the game rules, which, which are really, you know, very much about limiting the information access to that private equity fund, limiting decision-making power, uh, so that they aren't receiving information that could be utilized that would impact the integrity of the game uh, or able to make decisions that could impact one team versus the other. And so you see rules around those. Uh, so I think structuring the rules is the biggest challenge, Sean. Um, and so what we've done, or what has been done in the United States by various leagues, is they've basically created a blueprint set of rules. And they really only focus on one type of investment, and that is a private equity fund becoming a less than X, usually around 20% owner in a club and getting no perks, very little information rights, no ability to affect the liquidity of the team and essentially be along for the ride to take the common ownership interests 
not have any preferences, but take the common ownership interests of whoever are the departing LPs, provide liquidity for those de departing LPs, and then stand in their shoes and not even get the season ticket rights or the meet the manager rights and other perks that you know LPs used to get. So that's really the rules that have been devised. And the challenge, Sean, I would say is that doesn't fit. You know, that's that's an that's one thing that could happen, and that's what really is designed for the rules. But every situation has its own unique circumstances that don't fit that exact cookie cutter approach. And the cookie cutter rules uh, um, are not something private equity funds are used to dealing with. Yeah, because normally they have a quite a lot of leverage, right, in the, in the negotiation. Um, you know, and they're and they're pretty well, um, you know, equipped. Let's say with great legal advisors, obviously, um, to 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 advise them on, on what's good for them, them and not good for them, and what's high risk. And so that's really interesting. So in terms of if we would like, you know, and I know you're probably not going to want to do this too much, but say if we were blue sky thinking and thinking, you know, five years, ten years, twenty years down the line, right? The, the issue that you're talking about having this one size fits all model is the problem facing world sport all over because we always you know naturally go oh we should do this because the nfl are doing it or because the premier league are doing it um you know inevitably with the cultural differences the structural differences of the organizations involved it makes it difficult is there kind of um you know or would you advocate for um a certain sort of at least um approach to coming up with a solution as opposed to the actual solution itself but when when like leagues and teams or even in as now as the case international federations or competition organizers are, are taking and investing in private equity is there kind of from your side a better approach to take to so to make sure you come to a solution and to, to an agreement and uh, uh, an opportunity this is the longest question in the world i apologize you see chris is more concise than me as you can tell but the um is there a is there an approach which is the better approach to take to balance all the competing interests and ensure that you've got this genuine longer-term investment that helps the sports grow and the investors receive the returns that they would like to see? I don't know if I could come up with the, the perfect solution. I think there's a combination. Um, you know, you referenced it earlier that the high value and the security of long-term investments in U.S. professional sports is underpinned by a non-relegation system, right? And, and and at its core, the risk of not being relegated means that you will always be a participant in tier one. And being a participant in tier one is not just name recognition and top tier talent. It's the right to participate in media, media rights. And that, I think, is the underlying. So, so I think European clubs that looked at that, obviously, that's what in part, you know, some of the Super Leagues and other ideas are are underpinned on. I think that's going to continue. I think there'll be some tension around that and to figure out, you know, the haves and the haves nots in terms of the, the scale and size and backing of various clubs and their worldwide following. I think that's really going to play out interestingly. And I think, it, you know, if it moves more towards the American model, I wouldn't be shocked in the long term. Um, I don't know that um, you know, complete prohibition in the long, long term of funds or institutional investors as controlling owners in the United States, maybe that'll relax, you know, maybe we'll end up in a little bit more of a shift towards the international model there with some more flexibility. Um, I will say, you know, to, to Chris's point about uh, leverage in these transactions, 
uh, and his comment and your comment about who's leverage. This is a fascinating leverage difference between normal private equity and private equity in sports. So in normal private equity, private equity folks love and are very sophisticated negotiators. They usually have a power, a lot of power. They, um, they do not have to disclose much about their back office. So they don't have to disclose much about their limited partners. They don't have to disclose much about the way their fund structures work. And instead, they are the ones asking the questions of business owners uh, and digging really far deep into companies they're going to buy and acquire and what us lawyers fancily call diligence. So, so that's like the game of private equity, and there used to be the one asking the questions. Well, in private equity, in, in sports, it's kind of like totally flipped on its head, right? Because they're the ones being asked the questions. The leagues are vetting their back office, their LP structures, their everything, asking who's behind this, where's the money coming from, how does it work? And so they're the ones having to produce and answer all these questions. And when they go to ask them, the professional sports teams are like, here's some basic financial information and you're not going to get anything else. And so, and then it's the similar, like they're used to negotiating and, and winning and, and creating very favorable legal documents. Um, well, in the private, in the, in the sports world, again, flipped on its head, they, they don't hold as much leverage vis-a-vis -vis either the controlling owners uh, in a team. And so they basically take more limited rights, but in particular, as it relates to the leagues, you know, the leagues are pressing upon them uh, all kinds of obligations of disclosure, policing themselves, um, kicking out limited partners if their limited partners are bad actors, um, you know, indemnification of the league and its other owners related to acts of the funds. Um, undertakings that are really broad. Uh, and so the, the world is sort of flipped on its head where they don't have as much of the leverage as they're used to having. And instead, the leagues in this sort of autocratic regulated system where the league makes all the rules is, you know, really demanding on, on private equity funds. And so that's a really interesting thing. And what I would say most about that is um, that's a path that, you know, as folks who have represented league, like me have represented leagues, teams, and funds, that's a place where you really need to understand and make sure you have all of the relationships because that can be a pretty sensitive topic. You can't just come in and be a private equity lawyer or a private equity advisor, or even as a banker in this space, you really need to understand the relationships involved and where you're even likely to make you know, a way of, of any kind of, of, of help for your client. You can, I can, and Chris, maybe you've got some experience with this, but I can clearly see where some relationships may go get soured really quickly, given the intense nature of uh, some of these deals and how they come about. For you, is that fun in terms of like, you know, the, you know, as you said, you're, you know, you are a private equity lawyer first and foremost, and then coming into the sport, you know, the work you've done in sport, does that make it you know, more enjoyable or is it, or is it more stressful because you've now got to really apply your mind to the politics and the, as you say, and the sensitivities of sport? Well, you know, I would just say being a, a an M&A lawyer is fun for me. So that's the st starting point, but I am mostly a fan. I mean, I'm a enormous, enormous soccer, American soccer, European football fan. Um, to be able to apply my legal craft to my passion is really fun. Um, I love to see clubs grow. I love to see, uh, especially in the United States, the growth of the of MLS and MLS soccer is fascinating to me. Um, I, I love to be a part of it. I enjoy the the deal parts of it, but I love to mix in the parts of it that are my passion, whether it's you know um, you know soccer or 
or basketball or whatever the sport may be, um, it's fun to be able to to bring things you're passionate about into your work. And and for me, it's really honestly fun to either in, in any context to help people that have built something sell it right, to make money that they very much have earned, or to help somebody who's really in that interested, particularly a first-time investor, be it a fund or an individual, to bring them into the fold of professional ownership. Team ownership is really fun because uh, you can kind of help guide them to a place they wanted to get, either as a, a family legacy or as a, a first-time fund investor. That's, that's really cool. I love that as an answer. <laughs> it's funny because, like, you know, again, in the private equity space, it gets a bad rap sometimes, right? But, uh, um, but it's great that there's, you know, that there are these little, like, sub-stories and plots that you don't sometimes hear that actually are really interesting and um, enriching. Um, and so it's lovely that you can facilitate in that. Chris, did you have anything um, further you wanted to ask, Mark? Uh, only really from... A- commercial perspective and kind of the, just the questions that are naturally interesting, I guess, which are questions like w- w- what are the sort of hot properties that um, investment funds are after at the moment and what are, what are they really looking for in in their deals? Where's the sort of cutting edge of this got to? Well, it's all in its infancy. Um, it, one of the really interesting things, Chris, about U.S. professional and board, uh, investments, uh, private equity investments, excuse me, in professional sports is there's a limited inventory of deals. There's always been a limited inventory of deals. These are trophy assets. Teams go for sale, you know, across all of the four to five leagues, probably two to three teams a year for controlling ownerships. I mean, it is extremely limited. Uh, And so if you look at the limited partnership um, sales, these are secondary sales by existing limited partners to sell either to other new individuals or in this case to fund, that's a new game. So, that's a inventory that's kind of new. It's out on the market. There is definitely more of that. So I would say there's going to be a lot more activity. You know, there's been a couple announced each month, the Arctos dials, those kind of folks. I think you're going to continue to see a couple more announced each month. There is pent up demand from legacy owners who have been in an LP interest for a long time where the family doesn't desire to sell the controlling interest in the team. Uh, but the, there's a desired liquidity uh, for some limited partners. So I think you're going to continue to see that um, announced at a pretty steady pace over the next two to three years across all of the sports. Um, I think the other thing that I would say about that is that there's also, a, in addition to being a limited inventory, there's actually a limited number of participants. So I don't know, there's, there's new ones every few months, but there's a half dozen to 10 uh, private invest, private equity investment funds that are essentially approved or authorized, or at least close to getting approved or authorized to invest in these various teams within the league. So every fund is seeing every opportunity. I mean, the market is really, really narrow. And so what are they looking for in terms? Um, I think it's totally deal dependent, but right now, I think a lot of them are starting to want to deploy capital. So you're seeing them just try to get into deals at the right price to be the chosen um, bidder over the other funds and to take essentially purely common interests, just like the rules are designed. And then when you flip that on its head, that often doesn't work for the scenario. That's not actually what the majority owner is seeking or the exiting limited partner or the league is going to allow. There's just a flavor on it. And none of the rules really allow for that. There's just no real, other than taking a cookie cutter LP interest, 
in a specific team below the threshold and getting economic but no other rights. That's that's basically what the rules say. Um, there's no flexibility, and so, but that's not how the deals work. And so every deal is getting some form of customization, negotiation, et cetera, which really requires great relationships with league and league officials where your advisors you know, can add a ton of value to say, look, I know what you're doing. It doesn't fit the rules, but here's maybe why we need to think about it and like why this makes sense and let us go talk to this because every deal has a different flavor that doesn't fit the rules. And so I think you're going to see a lot of variety come out of that and then a change in the rules to allow for different things or to prohibit things they've already allowed for to say that didn't work. Like that was a terrible idea. Um, so that's one thing. And the last thing I'd say about that is at some point, there's also a policing function around this. So there's a bunch of prohibitions that are in these things like private equity funds not allowed to do all these things, right? Well, who's going to police that? These leagues are already taxed. You know, the league officials have very little way to not only enforce that rule, but also to go find that information and to take it, look into it. And they're going to go all these, there's all these reporting obligations of funds. I mean, who's going to look at all these reports that are delivered in the future? It's just going to become, you know, it's like a, a regulatory body almost. The league is becoming this regulatory body, but they aren't positioned to do that. And I think that is going to really be interesting to see whether that grows, falls away. There's some clearinghouse that does it for all the leagues. Who knows? Joe, it's a great point you raised, given that if you look at what FIFA are doing with the global clearinghouse in football and, you know, there just seems to be this inevitable course of travel. And as you've articulated throughout the podcast, you know, eventually you look at this and you go, if the if the model is, which it often is in our capitalist world, um, you know, growth is key and growth is essential, right? They're, they're never to be. You have to look for different ways to finance that growth. And when you do that, much like when you open up to betting, for example, as a commercial opportunity, right? It puts on a huge regulatory burden that wasn't there before, um, which requires bodies. And it's interesting because you're talking about it from the US perspective. And then if you look at what's going on with all the stuff that went on with Newcastle and the Premier League and, and so forth, and you look at what you know is going on with the EFL um, in, in, the, in the UK as well, that... You know, the criticism is they haven't got enough people to do that, hence why there's been this fan-led review that maybe there needs to be this independent licensing body to take the burden away from the leagues uh, and so they don't have to be the sort of the, the good or bad cop in that regard. And it can be some other body who's actually got statutory powers to, to do the digging that you're talking about. And it's interesting to see how that plays out both at domestic level and then in an international level. But it does seem, at one way or another, you have to grip this. Otherwise, you end up in, potentially, you could end up in situations uh, FIFA-esque from like 10 years ago, right? where you're suddenly, particularly with the you know the US um, laws in terms of the Wire Act and uh, all the anti-money laundering provisions that are in place there, um, you don't want to end up being caught by any of that. Right? You can clearly see why there is, um, as you were saying, a good amount of due diligence has taken place, at least in the initial investment. But maintaining that, is uh, quite a task. That's right. Which which um, uh, sports are sort of further ahead and which are sort of just getting going in, in this sphere? You, you get the impression, I think, that basketball and the NBA are probably um, leading in terms of taking on investors and um, Major League Soccer is probably just getting going. Is that is that right or is it pretty well spread out now no it's not quite spread out um i think you know interestingly enough i think major league baseball might have been the first one to announce rules allowing for this there has been less activity in major league baseball um than there has been in basketball basketball has i think probably the most limited partnership uh interests that are held by pr private equity teams 
interestingly enough, uh, I think about a quarter of the NBA teams, the controlling ownership of those is actually owned by some kind of private equity principal or somebody with a private equity past. So I don't know what the, the, the enamored um, love for basketball is with private equity, but it seems to be the biggest mover also within the LP interest. Major League Soccer is getting a fair amount of attraction. You know, we as a firm of Hogan Lovers, we did um, the first basketball deal, the first NHL deal, and um, the first uh, MLS deal, which was the Inter-Miami deal I mentioned. Um, I don't actually think there's been any NFL deal, and there aren't any, any rules around that. That would be a different game. That's a bigger valuation. Um, and so I would say it's it's basketball probably with the most activity. I think soccer will follow because the valuations are lower, and um, I think there's a fair amount of LP liquidity demand in that. And then um, I do think baseball will, will be there with hockey. And I think the NFL is just farther out and maybe a never. I mean, those are in, – in a lot of NFL teams, there are no LPs. It is a single-family owner. And and do you, would you say – final, I guess final question. Do you see sort of the um, funds looking at multi-sport ownership, particularly internationally, as the way forward as they – you know, as they – you know, as you said, they've got, got funds to deploy. Um, and obviously there's different – uh, rules, as you've clearly stated, around the world, is that the model that they, you know these ones, particularly who have got league approval in the US, who are going actually look, we've got some pedigree here. You can see we've got maybe not controlling interest, but we do it here. You know, we could help you. You know, in say the European country or you know other parts of the world. I think that's the long term play. Um, I think the ones that are focused on the US professional sports are right now just trying to. Um, deploy that strategy in most cases that they're they're solely focused on getting LP interests and US teams to a scale that makes sense, uh, whether they have separate funds or side funds or manage additional funds, which deploy that to international aspects and potentially controlling ownership. I think the answer is probably there are some fund documents that allow it uh, for sure. And so there are people that are expressly looking at not only US domestic, but also international interests. And then there are some who are, you know, principally focused on U.S. investments. Um, but it's so much in its infancy that I don't think the scale has really been deployed yet in, in the U.S. Um, but once it's tried and, 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 and shown and proven, that is a, you know, globalization is an excellent uh, expertise of private equity. There's just no doubt about it. So are many other things like technology, commercialization, e-commerce, improvement of media rights, uh, real estate development, all these ancillary assets that go along with it. But the private equity firms, they can bring a fair amount of expertise to the table to really make a professional sports team um, operate more efficiently, make it more profitable, make it ready for market to be sold. I mean, can you imagine that? That's one of their very best things is make it a super marketable asset. So they're bringing expertise around the table. And I think that could be deployed, Sean, just like you mentioned, uh, uh, anywhere in the world once that that model has been built. It's so, so interesting to see what, what how this all pans out in the sort of the next 10, 20 years, because yeah, we've talked about this before with other colleagues in the sector as well about this, you know, the changing nature of these funds you're describing earlier with the ever as Chris was saying with and you were saying about the evergreen funds and so forth. And it's it seems to me that um, you know, it's gonna be really interesting, you know, to compare internationally how each league, each team deals with this situation. But 
um, one thing's for sure, it's going to continue. <laughs> Their involvement's going to continue. And as you say, they do have a, an excellent skill, and particularly good ones, have an excellent um, skill set that they can bring to the table if they're if, if used wisely and, and correctly. Um, Mark, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate how busy you are. Um, and as I said at the uh, at the outset, you know your colleagues who work with you uh, speak very highly of you um, in that regards. And you know from our previous conversations and our conversations now, you are a fountain of knowledge when it comes to this. And so it's been a joy uh, speaking to you before the podcast and during the podcast. It's a real education in terms of um, you know what's going on. And so um, yeah, wish you all the success with the continued work that you do in this area. And I love the fact that you're such a, a big fan of sport. It's great to see. Um, and thanks for sharing this sort of the, the, those like beautiful insights that we don't often see when you, you know, when we talk about proactive, we're just talking about the, as you said, the deployment of capital and all that. And I, I love the fact that there's these excited, you know, people for the first time investing and, you know, but you can read it in the paper or now on the, on the, on the web that it's just, this this like, you know, hardened individuals who are just investing. I love the fact that there's this sort of like, you know, excitement still that exists as they invest into these, these mega franchises. So, um, thank you so much for your time. Um, and remember, and Chris, thank you for joining me as a co-host, as always, with the insightful questions. Um, remember, um, if you enjoyed the podcast, we always say this to people, please tell people about it. Please take the time to reach out and, you know, reach out to Mark and say, hey, you know, I really enjoyed this. I'm sure he would appreciate it. And of course, if you want to find out about all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. And wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, whatever part of the world you're in, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your day.